This morning we are in Exodus again, and before we look at the text, I have a question that I'd I'd like to ask you to seriously consider this morning. If someone came to you and said, I have a message from God for you, would you believe them? Someone walks up and says, God told me to tell you, would you listen as if they spoke for God. Last week, and actually the last two weeks, I spoke some about the importance of not having a hard heart. About being willing to listen and to be open to the possibility that God does in fact speak to us. So in one sense, I do want to say that we need to be open to hearing from God, especially through His Word, the Bible. But the Bible also tells us to have an honest sort of skepticism, to be open to hearing from God, but to not necessarily believe everything you hear and every person who claims to speak for God. So, for example, 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. And notice, at the end of the verse It says many false prophets go out. And what does a prophet do? A prophet is someone who comes to you and says, God told me to tell you. We we don't necessarily like to think of prophets walking around today. We, We tend to think that's something that happened in the New Testament and the Old Testament. But really, whenever someone says, I have a message for you from God, they are fulfilling a prophetic role. And John says, there are many false prophets In the world. The end of the verse makes it clear that the spirits that speak through people. And that's what a prophet is claiming to do. He's claiming to hear from God who is a spirit. Are not all from God. And so when someone says. God told me to tell you. It is right and good. To not necessarily believe them. Right away. God does not want you to just automatically believe someone who claims to speak in his name or even an internal voice or a feeling that you have or a compulsion. We are to test those things. And for us as New Testament believers, as as Christians today, we measure what we hear against the word of God, especially as that word is made clear in Christ. So John goes on to say in 1 John, the way you test a spirit is what does it tell you about Jesus? And does it mesh with who he is and what he's done for us? Now, I asked that question, would you believe someone who came to speak in the name of God? Because that's exactly where Pharaoh is. Pharaoh has an idea who Moses is. Moses grew up in Egypt, but he's never heard of the God that that Moses claims to speak for. And so Pharaoh is in a position of, does this man genuinely represent God? And I think many of us would do what Pharaoh did and dismiss Moses completely. When in fact, Moses did speak for God. We saw in the past two weeks that time and again, God did prove himself to Pharaoh. The issue was not whether or not God gave him evidence. 
The issue was Pharaoh chose to not believe that evidence. And this week, the scriptures show an additional evidence that Pharaoh also ignores. This week, God proves who he is to Pharaoh. So he overcomes that initial skepticism that is healthy by making a distinction between his people, the children of Israel, and the people of Egypt. Namely, as God continues to judge Egypt, he spares his people from that judgment. And this is not because God's people were perfect or even good. They were sinners just like the Egyptians were. And you will see that in the rest of Exodus as we continue to go through it. In the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, the way of salvation has always been by grace. Meaning, God does not spare people because they are good and punish people who are bad. In his grace, God makes a way for sinners who deserve his judgment to enjoy his blessings and favor. That's what grace is. Grace is giving blessing and favor to people who don't deserve it. God never saves people who are good on their own. The Bible teaches that none of us are actually good. No one deserves grace. In the coming weeks, we will talk about the sacrifices that God teaches his people to offer. Those sacrifices demonstrate that their sins needed to be paid for in order for them to fellowship with God, to be His people. Because of His holiness, their sin had to be paid for. And those sacrifices, those blood animal sacrifices, ultimately point to Jesus, the perfect sacrifice for all of our sins, who took all of God's judgment for us on the cross and rose again. But my main point for this morning is that because God has offered us salvation in Christ, we should purify ourselves and seek Him in holiness. Let me say that again. Because God has offered us salvation in Christ, we should purify ourselves and seek Him in holiness. And I want to connect that to what I've just said. God has offered us salvation in Christ, meaning, as He has warned that His judgment will one day come, He has made us His people, And he has spared us from that judgment because Jesus took all of that for us in our place. And because he has offered us that salvation for those of us who trust in Christ. Because of that, we should purify ourselves and seek him in holiness. So this morning, I want to look in Exodus at how God spared his people from his judgment. And how he used that as a sign to Pharaoh that he really was speaking through Moses, that Pharaoh really did need to listen. And then in the second half of this message, I want to demonstrate what that looks like for believers in Jesus today. For those of you who have a bulletin, I forgot to make this announcement. I made the the outline for this message three weeks ago, and you can take the bulletin and crumple it up and throw it away. Uh, The insert in your bulletin actually has the outline that I will follow. And so I'm going to look at the first point on that insert today. And see how Israel is spared God's judgment in three different ways. And then make some applications about that. So point number one. Israel is spared the flies. 
Point number one, Israel is spared the flies. Read with me Exodus chapter 8, verses 20 to 23. And Exodus is very close to the front of your Bible. I would encourage you, if you don't have one with you, use your phone, grab one from the the seat in front of you, and turn with me, and let's look at Exodus chapter 8 together. Verse 20, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall happen. I love the phrase, that you may know. It's a phrase that occurs all throughout this book as God reveals who he is. God doesn't leave Pharaoh any room for doubt. His continued disobedience is not for lack of evidence or proof. God's actions demonstrate beyond a shadow of a doubt what is true. He says that you may know. And notice what he's showing to be true. God says that you may know, verse 22, that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Egypt is a country that had many, many gods. But God is showing Pharaoh that their gods are powerless before the one true God, who is God in ancient Egypt and Israel, and He is God today in Egypt, Israel, Europe, Africa, America, Asia, and everywhere. God is the Lord in the midst of the earth. And this distinction showed in a crystal clear way that he is the God who is speaking through Moses. This specific plague was swarms of flies that bit. And you can tell that from Psalm chapter 78, verse 45, which says, flies devoured the Egyptians. And I believe that the Hebrew word for fly was probably clearer to the psalmist than it is to us. We just know it's a winged insect. But Psalm 78, 45 says these bit. So it immediately called to mind when I was a camper growing up and went to camp in Rose City, they had monster, monster horse flies. And they would take chunks of your flesh. They were awful. And I believe That is what they're talking about here. They devoured the Egyptians. And there were swarms of them. Not only that, they left the Hebrews completely alone. Have you ever seen a fly that has a set flight pattern? You can't tell where they're going to go, and you definitely can't control it without a fly swatter. God makes it very clear that he's in control even of the uncontrollable by putting a separation between Goshen and between Egypt, by afflicting the Egyptians, and by sparing the Hebrews. And the plague is so bad that for the second time, Pharaoh calls Moses 
to make a deal. So you remember, during the plague of frogs, Pharaoh has a moment where he realizes that even though his magicians could actually make more frogs, they couldn't get rid of them. And so he calls Moses and Aaron and asks them for his help. This is now the second time that he does that, and he attempts to make a deal. He attempts to compromise. Look with me at verses 24 through 32 of Exodus chapter 8. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. And then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, it would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. And then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people, and not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Pharaoh initially does not want to say yes to what Moses does, so he comes halfway. He says, I don't want you to leave Egypt, but I will let you take some time to worship the Lord and to sacrifice to him. Pharaoh tries to say that the really important thing is to worship God, And he might even be attempting to argue that if God really is the Lord of the whole earth, as God just said through Moses, does it really matter if the people leave Egypt? Why not just worship in Egypt? The reality is it matters because this is what God has told them to do. And in addition, Moses also offers this reason to Pharaoh. He says, the sacrifices that God requires would be an abomination to the Egyptians. So you've heard the expression, a sacred cow. Well, cows really were sacred in Egypt. You can still see it in archaeology. You can see it in the artwork that they had and the idols that they left behind. They didn't worship cows, but cows were sacred animals. And so if you killed one, the Egyptians, they probably would have rioted. Moses says they would have stoned them. One commentator pointed out this would be a little bit like going to a Hindu temple and sacrificing a cow. You have a riot on your hands. You have killed something that's deemed sacred. And so Pharaoh, in light of that reasoning, seemingly relents and says, all right, you can go into the wilderness. And you might remember that this is not the first time that he has given in. He also did this with the frogs. said, yes, go ahead and go. And Moses says to him, do not do what you did last time and go back on your word. But of course, that is exactly what he does. He continues to be an example of people with a hard heart who make deals with God. that say, God, if you do this, I will do this. And very often, when our suffering leaves, so does our commitment to obey the Lord. And so God sends another plague. 
Look with me at Israel's livestock spared. Israel's livestock spared. This is chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. My second point for today is that Israel's livestock is spared. God continues to make this distinction to demonstrate that he really is speaking through Moses. And this plague may actually be slightly ironic. So you remember what Moses has just told Pharaoh. We can't offer sacrifices from the herd in Egypt because these animals are sacred to you and your people will stone us. So what does God do? God himself kills the Egyptians' sacred animals. When Pharaoh goes back on his word, God kills all the sacred animals that are out in the field. This is important. Someone came up to me after first service and said, hey, it says that all of the livestock are dead here in the fifth plague, and then later in the seventh plague, there are more livestock to be killed. How is that possible? The reason it's possible, and one, one commentator I read suggested this, in Egypt, even though the Nile provided them with rich pasture land, it was still not what you would find in a, in a climate that had more rainfall because they didn't have rainfall. So what they would do is they would actually rotate which animals went out to pasture. So some animals were in the field, and that's actually what it says very clearly died in verse 4. And some animals were left back in the barns and, and in the, the stalls in Egypt. And so it's, it's presumed that those are the animals that later die in the seventh plague. Another person also suggested it's entirely possible that the Egyptians went ahead and stole the Hebrews' livestock. And that, that may be what happened as well. The point is this. God maintains this distinction. And not only does God maintain it, but Pharaoh actually verifies God's word. He has remembered, God said, Originally, with the flies, I will make a distinction that you may know that I am Lord in the midst of the earth. And so still in doubt, Pharaoh doesn't believe that this distinction has really taken place. All he knows is their livestock are dead. And so to verify that God's word is true, he sends to check to see if the livestock of the people of Israel are still alive. And sure enough, they are. The scripture says, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But his heart is still hard. Even with the evidence and proof, he still will not let Israel go. And so God sends another plague. And it's the third point for today. Israel is spared boils. Israel is spared boils. Look with me at verses 8 through 12 of chapter 9. 
And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. It's clear from verse 11 that this plague also was only on the Egyptians. And you remember the magicians that Pharaoh calls in during the first signs and plagues to demonstrate that his gods really are just as powerful as the God that Moses claims to speak for. They do successfully turn water to blood. They do successfully produce frogs. But notice now they can't even stand up. And as Pharaoh continues to resist God, the plagues have grown in severity. They have gone from an inconvenience when the Nile became blood and the people had to dig wells for water, they just had to work a little bit harder, to a painful pestilence. And now, even on Pharaoh's own body, there are painful sores that the magicians cannot even stand, let alone cure. And still, Pharaoh will not listen. And meanwhile, as Egypt suffers... God's people are safe. He maintains this distinction that God's people are spared his judgment and his wrath. And as we think about application for today, I want to turn back to the book of 2 Corinthians that Chris read for our scripture reading. And I want to ask this kind of distinction, what does it mean for us as New Testament believers? I want to talk about how God still shows himself in the church. Because there is a very real distinction between the people of God and between the people who reject God. What does it mean for us today? One of the ways that God showed himself to the Egyptians was by sparing the Israelites from the judgment that was very visible. He was pouring it out of them in plagues that are described very clearly, and it was obvious. Pharaoh could send people and double-check whether or not the Israelites were actually spared from these plagues. You don't need me to tell you it doesn't actually work that way today. In one sense, it would be great if at the end of this message I could say, and God continues to spare his people from pain and suffering so that those who trust in him are blessed and those who turn from him are not, and all you have to do is look. But that's not true. God does allow suffering in the lives of Christians. And people are honestly confused about this. There are people, remember at the beginning I talked, there there are many false prophets who have gone out into the world, they claim to speak for God. There are people who talk about suffering in ways that if you just had a little more faith, or if you just gave a certain kind of offering to the right church or charity, that your sickness would go away, that your financial troubles would be over. They promise all kinds of health and wealth if only you'll give money or have faith and speak the right words of faith. That God wants to bless you. All you have to do is be open to that blessing and speak words authoritatively. 
They'll say things like, God wants you to be healthy, as if God wants to do this, but can't do it for some reason. Sometimes they'll promise money, saying that God wants to bless you financially. The reality is, that is not how God works. He is not limited by us. Right now, we as New Testament believers live waiting for King Jesus to return. And while we wait, Jesus himself said, in this world you will have trouble. God doesn't instruct us to change our lives for an easier life by speaking words of faith or giving money to the church or any number of things. The way he shows the distinction between his people and the people who reject him today is not by sparing us from pain. Rather, he teaches us to know him, to trust him, and to love him even in pain. The distinction is real, and this is crucial. Remember what I said, my main point for today is that because God has offered us salvation in Christ, we should purify ourselves and seek him in holiness. If you are seeking your own comfort and happiness, you are focused on the wrong thing. And there will not be an obvious distinction between your life as someone who professes Christ and the life of a non-believer who seeks the exact same comfort and happiness. God does allow suffering and pain in the lives of his children. He uses it to refine you. He uses it to discipline you for those times when you sin. And he uses it to ultimately make you like Christ and simultaneously to show the world that your hope is not here, it's in Christ. The salvation God offers us is not so cheap as to be a luxurious American life. We have a future hope and we need to be purifying ourselves, getting ready for it. Part of that is learning to trust God in our pain. So let me be clear. I'm saying there will be pain and suffering as a normal part of the Christian life. But there is one very direct way that this distinction between Israel and Egypt does apply to Christians. And that's this. There will not be any true Christians in hell. There will be a lot of people who have called themselves Christians in hell. But no one who was redeemed by God will ever experience God's wrath. Just as God did not pour out his wrath on his people in Egypt, so God spares his people in the church from his wrath. Why? Not because Christians are good people. That's obviously not true. But because Jesus took God's judgment and wrath for us. We are saved by grace through faith when we trust that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. All of God's judgment and wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ. When you trust him as your savior, that means that you will never be condemned for your sin because your sin has already been paid for by the precious blood of Christ. That, however, does not mean that you will be spared from all suffering. If anyone tries to tell you otherwise, I would encourage you to point them to the book of 2 Corinthians. So for scripture reading today, we read from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, which urges believers to be separate from the world. It talks about being separate from unbelievers, being, not being unequally yoked. 
And just before the passage that I asked Chris to read, Paul talks about his ministry and how those he works with and he himself sacrifice everything to proclaim Christ, not as people who are sad because of what they've lost, not as people who go around moaning about how bad they have it, but as someone who has the greatest treasure in the world. Let me read the passage right before our scripture reading and, and then hopefully tie this all together. So I'm in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and I want to start in verse 2. Paul is quoting from the Old Testament, and he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech and the power of God with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. That's the context for the passage that Chris read that urges us, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And his point is, his ministry is validated Not by God blessing him with great material wealth. Not by God sparing him from pain and hardship and suffering. His ministry is validated by his faithfulness and love for Christ in the midst of calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots. I could go on. His his hope is not that God will spare him from the pain of life. His hope is in Christ. His point is, we have something that is incredibly precious. Something that's worth all the pain and suffering in the world because it is immeasurably greater than anything this world has to offer. And when we suffer illness or pain or slander or want or need, we can show how our hope in Christ is better by making our joy obvious. So you want to know what's the distinction between God's people and the people who reject God? It's the hope we have in Christ. It's the hope we have in the future. It's being united with God through Christ. That's why he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Growing up, I I only ever heard that verse applied in reference to marriage and business partnerships. As if God's primary concern was whether or not you married a Christian or whether or not you engaged in business with a non-Christian. Both of those are terrible applications of this text. Both of those point to trying to have a good life here and now. Marry the right person, God will bless you. Do business the right way, God will bless you. That is the exact opposite of what Paul is talking about. He says, don't pursue the same things. It's entirely possible to have an all-Christian business and have your sights set on financial security and wealth here and now. 
Paul is far more concerned with Christians who share their values with the world that when you look at them, you can't tell a difference because they want the exact same things that the world wants. And he's been talking throughout the book about false teachers who came along and promised all kinds of great rich blessings. And the Corinthians want to follow those teachers because life with health and wealth sounds a whole lot better to them than getting beaten and shipwrecked with Paul. And Paul is telling them, don't chase after earthly pleasures. They cannot compare with what we have in Christ. The whole point is, Christians should not be obsessed with the same things non-Christians are. So are you sick? Go ahead and pray for healing. But while you pray, praise God for His goodness to you, that your sins are forgiven. And in your praise, you can show your hope in Christ even while you're sick. Are you struggling to make ends meet financially? Then let me encourage you to have an attitude of thankfulness for what God has given you. In your thankfulness, you will show that your hope is in Christ, not in money. Every American wants a big, beautiful house. Most want boats. Most want cars. If you show that you can be content with something less than what the average American has, and you show that you have joy in Christ, you will show a distinction between the people of God and the people who have rejected Him. You might be asking, what on earth does this have to do with Exodus? has a lot to do with Exodus. As God makes a distinction between His people and the Egyptians, as the Egyptians suffer His judgment and Israel is spared, He is beginning to bring them out from Egypt and to prepare them for lives of worship. He is pouring out His judgment on Egypt for their idolatry and for their sinful abuse of His people. He is showing that His people escape judgment and ultimately are made to worship Him in rich, God-blessed fellowship with Him. And what ultimately happens with Israel, and what very often happens with people who profess to follow Christ, is that they want to avoid God's judgment and then keep all of their idols. And that's exactly what the teachers in Corinth were saying. Paul suffers because he's not doing this gospel right. You can have Christ and enjoy wealth and prosperity. And in a sense, they were saying, you can stay in Egypt, enjoy all of the good things that Egypt has to offer, and worship God at the same time. It's the compromise that Pharaoh offered Israel. Just stay here. You can go ahead and worship. But that is not how salvation works. As we'll see later in Exodus, God is a jealous God. You can't come to Him for salvation and then get on with your life as if nothing happened. Jesus Himself said, you cannot serve two masters. Trusting in Jesus is more than saying a prayer that settles your eternal destiny. Trusting in Jesus means having a new life in Him. And that life has radically different values. That's why Paul says he can be content in every situation, in times of plenty and of hunger, abundance and of need. And he actually makes abundance sound like it's just as much of a threat to his priorities as need is, because it is. His hope and joy is found not in physical health and wealth, 
but in Christ and the promises that are in Him. When we are blessed with abundance, we very often forget Christ. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the passage that we read for Scripture reading, come out and be separate. You cannot stay in Egypt. In chapter 7, verse 1, he writes, Since we have these promises, promises of God's love and fellowship, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That phrase, bringing holiness to completion, is so important. Because we believe we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. When you trust Christ, your eternal destiny is settled because all of your sins are paid for by the blood of Christ. But that's not the end of the picture. That's the beginning. Your ultimate end is to be holy, to be made like Christ. And so here, Paul is saying, since you have these promises, cleanse yourself from every defilement of body and spirit Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Holiness is not brought to completion until you see the Lord face to face. And Paul is saying, now, in fear of God, purify yourselves. Learn to be holy. Recognize the judgment that God pours out on Egypt. That's part of what the fear of God means. And with one eye on that, and one eye on the incredible, beautiful, rich promises that God has given to us, Purify yourself. Let me ask you today, are you doing that? Are you cleansing yourself from every defilement of body and spirit? Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Do you fear God? Are you trusting in His promises and seeking Him? Another way to ask this is, what do you Love. What do you enjoy? Are you growing closer to your Savior every single day? Can you say with all honesty, I love God? We all know that's the right thing to say in church. You can't say anything else. But can you say that and mean it? Can you say with all honesty, I love God? And if you can say yes, does your life show it? Do you spend time with God in prayer? Do you spend time seeking the Lord in his word? And do you spend time with other people who also love God so that you can encourage each other? Do you praise God in song? Do you love listening to good preaching? And I don't just mean fellowshipping with Christians by spending time with them. I mean encouraging each other in faith and praying together. You know that you have good Christian fellowship if by the end of an evening, you actually want to spend time in prayer. That's almost a, a test of real fellowship. Because if you've shared burdens and the other person has helped make them lighter, the most natural thing in the world is to say, let's pray about this together in unity. Does that ever happen when you spend time with your Christian friends? Or do you spend time with your Christian friends just like you spend time with your non-Christian friends talking about all the same things? Is there a difference? Is your fellowship really Christian? Do you have an attitude of joyful prayer? Have you ever experienced the fellowship and joy of God in prayer? And are you working as an act of worship? 
when you go to work, when you punch the time clock or whatever it is that you do, are you in fellowship with God or is that just a part of your life that has nothing to do with him? Do you pray to him throughout the day? And if you can't honestly answer yes to those questions, then let me ask you again, what is it that you actually do love? Because if God doesn't show up anywhere in your life, then your life is saying, no, I don't love him, in spite of what you might say out loud. The book of Exodus shows clearly what happens to the Egyptians. They experience the judgment of God for their idols and their sins. And the people of God, by contrast, by his mercy and grace, are spared his judgment, and they are called to come and worship him. Those are the two choices that we have. We can suffer judgment and be condemned with our idols, or we can come and worship the living God. So let me ask you today, not what have you chosen in the past, what are you currently choosing moment by moment? Let's pray. I want to give you just a a few moments to talk to the Lord so that if this message has spoken to your heart, I would encourage you to pray now and, and talk with him about it. Father in heaven, you have promised us incredibly rich blessings in Christ. Lord, we look forward to his return to a new heaven and a new earth and the full joy of your goodness and good creation. We ask that you would help us to put all of our hope in him and to be faithful in purifying ourselves as we look for him to come. May your word be on our hearts. May we be faithful to seek you. In Jesus' name, amen.